Uh, today has truthfully been a, a pretty long day in the making. Uh, all morning, I've been kind of trying to like pinch myself and remind myself that this is reality and try to kind of like, yeah, there <laughs> she pinched me. Um, and remind myself that this is real because, you know, it's, it's, it's just going by so fast. And before we know it, we're going to be a week two and three and four and five. And we're going to look back on this day and who knows how much of it we'll actually remember. But obviously, it's a really, really special day, uh, again, as we brand, start this brand new church right here in this community uh, of Grand Blank. So again, thank you so much for deciding to show up today. It's exciting, too, because we can finally start saying things to people like, hey, see you next week. And we can tell people things like, hey, we meet every week at 1030, or if you're a person that's a little bit high maintenance, we can say things to you like, hey, maybe you should go check out some other place next week. No, we wouldn't actually do that. Um, but really, these last two years have just gone by so fast. It's, it's really, really overwhelming to be standing in front of you right now. It's definitely really, really humbling to be standing of, uh, in front of you. Um, and to so many of you who are here today, um, before I go too much farther here, I, I really do just want to pause and again, just say thank you. Along with this team of people that are helping this church to get started, we, we really do thank you because so many of you who are standing and sitting here today uh, have given very sacrificially of your time and your resources and your gifts and your talents. Uh, a lot of you who are sitting here today um, have contributed to us uh, significantly from a financial perspective. There are a lot of you who have spent countless hours, literally hours in prayer for this church long before it even had a name long before we even had this building to meet in. And so again, uh, this doesn't you know, do it justice at all, but again, we just say thank you so, so much for believing in us, and again, even more than that, believing in the church that God himself uh, created. I'll never forget, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I remember getting a phone call from uh, a buddy of mine who actually lives down in, in Guatemala. He's actually one of the pastors of that church that we're helping uh, support down there at Shoreline City. Uh, but prior to that, uh, to helping launch that church, he served full-time at a mission organization called Pray America. And uh, ever since he moved down there, we would do a fairly good job, we think, of like keeping in contact with each other. But generally, we would kind of schedule those times to call each other just because our schedules are so busy. There's a time change, all that good stuff. And so whenever you would get like a call, when I would get a call from him, like kind of out of the blue, generally it was pretty important. And so I remember the day and it was like some random crazy long number. I didn't recognize him. I was like, oh, this is probably Lance. And so I picked up the phone. I was like, hey, what's up? And he was so excited to tell me this story. And I was really, really happy that he called that day. Uh, he went on to explain to me that, that they thought that the wells that they had on their piece of property were running dry, or so they thought, right? Like the water was coming out with like hardly any pressure at all. And so they're kind of going, okay, there's either a big clog or, or the well itself is running dry. And so uh, they bring out some experts and, and they figure out, you know, that, that it is what they kind of had feared. They fear like, you know, okay, yeah, that the well, the cistern is indeed running dry. He's like, okay, so what are we gonna have to do about this? So they bring out more experts and more engineers and people that figure out, hey, how deep you're gonna have to dig to get to a new well, what's that, what that is gonna cost and all that good stuff. And so they estimate that on this particular piece of property, they were gonna have to dig between 900 and 1,200 feet and the project was gonna cost them like $90,000. Now, $90,000 is a lot of money anywhere, including here in America, but when you're in Antigua, Guatemala, where a dollar goes pretty far, it's a lot, a lot of money. And so they're sitting there and they're going, okay, like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna pay for this? And Ron, who was the, who was the director at the time, who has actually since passed away, incredible man of faith, uh, he decides, okay, I better go back to America and try to raise this $90,000. And so he goes back to America and he's going around to all these churches and all these organizations that kind of helped support the ministry in the past. He's going around to all these places and he's making like zero progress. It's not going very well at all. People really aren't contributing that much. And it's not like his third stop, this third church. And, 
you know, he presents the whole thing and says, hey, we need to raise this $90,000. And this guy comes up to him afterwards and he's like, all right, great. Finally, someone that's going to hand me a stinking check, right? And this guy comes up to him and he's like, hey, I don't have any money to give you. Wonderful, right? He's like, why don't you, but uh, will you, Ron, will you pull back out the map of the property? And so Ron says, yeah, okay. And so he rolls back out the map of the property. He's like, this is really weird and I don't even understand what's really going on, but while you were talking, the whole time, God was directing me to this specific spot on the map. And he points to it. He says, you're going to find water right here. And I know I'm going to sound crazy, but God was telling me this. And you're going to find it at 32 feet right here. And Ron's kind of like, no, I'm not. Because <laughs> the experts told me I wasn't going to find it till at least 900 feet. And so I mean, he kind of takes it in, but at the same time, he will admit that he kind of dismisses it. And so a couple, you know, churches later, he's again, he's presenting the whole thing, and um, so somebody else comes up to him afterwards that he knows a little bit, and they're having another conversation. He's like, yeah, you're not going to believe this. And he tells him this story about this guy pointing to the specific spot at this map, and he gets this grin on his face, and he's like, what? He's like, I don't know why I'm doing this right now, but as you're talking right now, I'm just feeling like God maybe do something. He's like, how much would it cost, hypothetically, if you were to dig a well right there and it was 32 feet and you found water, how much would that cost? I mean, obviously not $90,000, but what would it cost you to dig right there 32 feet? And Ron's kind of like figuring out in his head. He's like, well, I don't know. I mean, it would cost that much. We'd have to rent like one machine, but we could use our own employees. I and mean, we needed to hire anyone to do this. He's like, $300, maybe 300 bucks. And the guy grins again and he reaches into his pocket and he has like $300 and some quarters in his pocket and he says, go dig a hole. And so now Ron's really curious, but still not to the point that he's totally convinced it's incredible what God has to do to grab our attention. And he goes back, he's not very successful, doesn't really raise much money beyond that $300. He's back in Guatemala now. And one of the first short team mission trips that comes down there, he's presenting them with this need. And he's telling them about everything that's going on at the organization, giving them updates. And he tells them about this well. And he's like, hey, the reason that your water pressure is really, really bad, uh, you know, like the Seinfeld episode where it's not coming out, Kramer, driving them nuts. Anyway, like three of you got that. Um, but anyway, right, he's like, the reason that the water pressure is so lousy is we have to dig this new well. And he explains it to them, and they're like, okay, great. And, you know, ask them if they would consider giving. And everybody heads away that night and goes back to their rooms to sleep. But one young lady comes up to him, and she's, like, distraught, like, visibly distraught. And she's like, I have never had something like this happen in my life before. But the entire time that you were talking, God was, like, audibly saying to me, yellow flower yellow flower over and over and over again. I can't get it out of my head. What does it mean? And Ron's like, I have no idea what that means. Like yellow flower, he's like, look around. And it's like the middle of like the jungle almost, right there in the hill country of Guatemala. There's yellow flowers everywhere. He's like, you need to pray for clarity because I got no idea what in the heck that means. I know you're excited and God was speaking to you, but seriously, I have no idea what in the heck that means. He's like, I'll pray too. And so she kind of goes away and she says that that night she doesn't get like any sleep because she's just praying about, God, what does this mean? Yellow flower. I know that that was you speaking to me. And the next morning she's brushing your teeth and she looks out the window of the bathroom and out in the middle of this grassy field, there is a singular yellow flower sticking out of the ground and she loses it. And she runs and she finds Ron and she goes, I know what it means. This is the yellow flower. And she takes it to him. And now he's shaken. He goes, this isn't going to make any sense to you because I haven't told you the backstory. But a couple of weeks ago, a guy pointed to a map and said I was going to find water at 32 feet. And this is the exact same spot. And so he gets his guys together. He, go rent, he goes and rents the one piece of equipment and they start digging at 28 feet. They had water up to their knees. 
And they're looking up, and he's like, four more feet. Measure exactly 32 feet, because this guy told me 32 feet. At 32 feet, they had water spilling in from four different directions, and they had found their well at 32 feet, and it cost them a whopping $300. And my buddy Lance, who knows this whole backstory, because Ron's been kind of telling him about it, is looking into the hole just like blown away, right? And Ron looks over at him, they make eye contact, he slaps him in the chest and he says, crazy, huh? And walks away. And when we hear stories like that, we think the exact same thing. That is crazy. I remember when he called me that day, I thought, that is crazy. And if you're anything like me, and you certainly don't have to admit to this, I'll I'll follow my sword for this, but I have thought in moments like that, why doesn't God ever seem to do things like that in America? I mean, why do you only seem to hear stories like that of crazy things happening like that in these far away and these distant lands for for people who are living in third world countries, for people who, who are living as missionaries? Or we might even more selfishly think, and I've thought this, why doesn't God ever seem to do anything like that in my life? Why won't God make it that clear for me? A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was in a one-on-one meeting with Travis Whitaker, who's the lead pastor of Mile City Church, a church that may or may have not had just a little bit to do with this church getting started, the understatement of the year. And uh, in that meeting, uh, Travis started asking some of those, hey, I'm going to really start to do some digging type questions, as he often would, and I actually really appreciate that about him. It forced me to be honest with myself. And one of those questions that he asked me that day was, Shay, how are you doing with your pride? Now, pride is something that we all wrestle with. I mean, it's the sin of man, right? To a certain extent, every single one of us wrestle with pride. But I knew what he was asking that day. He was asking me, Shay, you're not being an idiot, right? Like, you're not trying to take credit for any of this stuff that is happening, right? I mean, you are sure that you are giving God the credit because for whatever reason, before we have even launched... God has already been showing Grumlaw an incredible amount of favor. And it was Travis's way of checking in with me and saying like, hey, like you're not trying to take credit for this stuff, right? Like you better be giving God the credit for this. And I remember answering the question and telling him, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job at kind of keeping this stuff in line. And honestly, it would be really, really foolish of me to try to take credit for any of this because God has so clearly orchestrated every step along the way. Like right now, if I was to spend the next two hours, and it would take about that long to tell you everything that has kind of happened as it relates to Grumlaw over the last two years, and then at the end of that time, I followed that up by trying to convince you that it was all because of me that it was all just because of my hard work. It would be laughable. Even those of you that aren't even sure if God is real, you'd be like, yeah, I think there's something maybe just a little bit bigger than you going on here. Like I remember after my wife and I, we decided like, hey, this is definitely what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to plant this church and it's supposed to be in grand blank. And then all the fears come in and initially the the biggest fear it always used to be is financial concerns, right? Like, oh my gosh, am I I gonna be able to take a salary? Are we gonna be able to pay for screens? Are we gonna be able to pay for a building? Are my kids gonna starve to death, right? You start going down this rabbit trail of like all these horrible things are gonna happen from a financial standpoint. No more than 48 hours after I started telling people that it was supposed to be in grand blank. I was down cleaning in my utility room, and this is a very quick version of this story. And I happened to look up, and long story short, I pull an envelope on top of a vent. I didn't put it there. My wife didn't put it there. And there was $5,500 and $100 bills in my utility room that neither of us knew about. Or I remember when we were like, 
told, like, hey, you're supposed to go to Grand Blanc. You're supposed to start this church. And my biggest concern was like, oh my gosh, where are the people going to come from? I don't know people up here. I haven't spent a significant amount of time in Grand Blanc. God, like, we can't pull this off on our own. We know we have to get, like, other people on board. And here we are today, and 67 adults are a part of this launch team, 67 adults that are committed to getting this church off the ground. I mean, God must have just been laughing at me in that moment. Or this very building that we are sitting in right now. It was the very first place that we looked at, and we were told initially that it wouldn't work out because there were too many Sundays that were already booked. We are going to have to relocate all these times. Months later, because nothing else is working out, we decided to just kind of randomly call back here. And they say, yeah, actually, pretty much all those dates have opened up. And now we get to be here 52 weeks a year. We don't have to relocate a single time. I remember the fear of we, we knew, my wife and I, we knew that we were supposed to move up here, but we weren't really crazy about moving because moving is from Satan. And... Uh, we didn't want to do that, right? And we really liked our old house and then all the fears of like, oh my gosh, are we going to be able to sell our house? How's that going to go? We put our house up for sale on a Thursday at, 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 four, or at noon and it was gone the next day uh, by, by four o'clock. It sold in about 24 hours. Every step along the way, God has had these things orchestrated. I could go on and on and on. In fact, I have this journal that I keep and I carry with me everywhere I go, and at the top of it, it's written, ways that God has shown off. And if I was to read you every little thing that I have written down in that journal, again, even those of you who do not have a relationship with Jesus, you would listen to this and go, it seems like something bigger is going on here. God has this whole thing perfectly orchestrated for his purpose. We can be so quick to think, woe is me. Why doesn't God ever seem to show up like that in my life? And I would challenge you that he is making himself known all the time. But we're too distracted, we get too busy, we're too self-centered, we're too narrow-minded, we become too preoccupied, we're too engrossed, we get too overloaded, we can be too dismissive, and we miss it. That if we would just slow down, we would see God not only working in other people's lives, but in our own lives as well on a very regular basis. Before we jump into what else we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, I'd like to pray, though, for you and pray for me, so let me do that now. God, thank you. Thank you for putting your idea, it's not my idea, your idea for this new church in my head. Thank you for bringing this incredible team of people around us that are committed to getting this church started. Thank you for pursuing us, that even though we as people constantly turn our back to you, you still just continue to pursue us over and over and over and over again. And Father, I'll also say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the times where you do show off and I don't give you the credit, or you do show off, and even worse, I don't even recognize it's happening. Help me and the rest of the people in this room to become more alert to when you are trying to make yourself known, when you are trying to grab our attention. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite books in all of scripture, it's found in the Old Testament, um, kind of right there in the middle of the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible's kind of divided into two sections. We have the Old Testament, which is kind of the first half of the Bible. 
documents a bunch of stuff before Jesus ever stepped foot on earth. And then we have the New Testament, which documents Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, then a bunch of events that took place afterwards. And so right there in the first half of that Bible in the Old Testament, in the middle, we have this book called Esther. And one of the reasons that I like this book of Esther so much is because God is so clearly at work throughout the 10 chapters of this book. There's no way that any sane person could read the book of Esther and think, you know what, this just really all seems like a coincidence. It's impossible. Now the irony here, when you read the book of Esther is that God isn't actually mentioned a single time, not once, once, which is at least a little bit curious, right? Because here we have the Bible, this book that is supposed to be all about God, but yet we have an entire book within the Bible that doesn't mention God a single time. Now, I actually don't think that's an accident. It's as if the writer of this book is saying there is no need to even mention God because his fingerprints are so clearly all over this. It's an invitation to read this account and look for God's activity. Now, I want to set the stage here before we jump into the book of Esther and give you a little bit of context as to what's going on here. When we pick up the book of Esther, it's about a hundred years after the Babylonian exile. So at one point, about 100 years earlier, before the book of Esther, uh, the Babylonian kingdom was the most powerful kingdom on the planet. They seemed like they would be a world power for seemingly forever. And they would go around and they would take over all these nations, Israel not to be the exception there. And so they ransacked Israel, they ransacked Jerusalem. And one of the things that they would do is they'd say, hey, you can't live here anymore. You're not allowed to live in your native land. And they would bring these people back to Babylon with them. And so when we pick up the book of Esther, it's about 100 years after that has occurred. But oh, how the mighty have fallen. The Babylonians are no longer the most powerful kingdom. In fact, the kingdom of Persia, the Persians, have now taken over the Babylonians, and they're not quite as strict. They're going, you want to go back to the place where you used to live? Go for it, more power to you. And so most of the Jewish people that were living in that land decide to go back to Jerusalem. They go back to Israel. However, there was this small remnant of the people that decided to stay. They're like, you know what? This is kind of all we've ever known. We're just going to stay right here. And most of them settled in the capital city uh, of Persia, a city called Susa. So when we pick up the book of Esther, one of the first characters that we're introduced to is this guy by the name of King Xerxes. And we find out that Xerxes, he really liked to have a good time. In fact, Xerxes loved to do a little drinking. And when Xerxes would start to do a little bit of drinking, he wouldn't make the wisest of decisions. Anyone know anyone like that? Don't put your hands up. That's a joke, okay? Um, but Xerxes, uh, we found out right away, right here at the beginning when we're introduced to him, um, he was throwing this lavish, lavish party. In fact, it says right there, it says in Esther chapter one, the celebration lasted 180 days. Now that is a bender. It says it was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. I mean, he's throwing this party so he can show off to everyone these incredible things and all this stuff that he's collected and all these kingdoms that he's taken over. Now, by edict of the king, the only rule that he says, I told you he liked to drink, it says no limits were placed on the drinking. For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. He's like, have a good time. Now, once the king... And his closest friends are really good and hammered. Uh, they come up with this really, bril really brilliant decision, which we all know that wonderful decisions are born when you are intoxicated. And he comes up with this really good idea. He's like, oh my gosh, I got it. My wife is gorgeous. So I know I'm showing off all this other stuff, but I also kind of want to like, show you guys my wife because she's really, really attractive. So I'm going to go get her. She's going like, to kind of come out and do some twirls and stuff like that. It's going to be really, really great. Let me go get her. He says this. He says, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. I'm sure that she was going to be down with this idea. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, to no one's surprise, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Now, what's so, this is completely side note, has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, 
But isn't it funny that here we are thousands of years later and people still haven't really learned their lesson here? People still just love going out and getting intoxicated and making really, really dumb decisions. Like the husband, the boyfriend, the significant other, the fiance is hammered and he tries to get his bride, his girlfriend, whoever, to do something. She's stone cold sober and she's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And then the guy has the audacity to get mad at her. Now, none of you admit to admit to this even, but chances are, even if you are a couple that has spent amount of time, you know, drinking with your significant other, this is probably like something that has literally happened to you before. Again, don't actually admit to that. It's hilarious how we still seem to struggle with these issues that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Think, man, we get better at this, but not so much. Anyway, it says here that Xerxes is really, really mad. And in fact, he's still intoxicated. And so him and his buddies are sitting around and they compound this already pretty dumb decision to try to get her to come out. And they're sitting around and, and they're all kind of egging the king on. They're like, how dare her? You're the king. I don't know if she heard, but you got to do what the king says to do. I mean, you got to do something about this King Xerxes. And one of his cronies comes up with this brilliant statement. He says, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. <laughs> Seems like maybe a bit of a stretch, but nobody speaks up. It says, women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Again, it shows you the quality of individuals that this guy would hang out with, that not one of them was like, are we sure? Like, seems like a little bit of a stretch here. Like, uh, uh, are we like jumping to a conclusion maybe too soon? It says, before the day is out, the wives of all the kings and nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the exact same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. And because they're so filled with rage, because they're so drunk, they're sitting there like, yeah, yeah. And Xerxes is like, yeah, you better believe it. And he banishes her. He's like, you are no longer my queen anymore. You are no longer my wife anymore. Get out of here. But guess what happens when he sobers up? He wises up. Some of you should put that on you know, your wall or something. Sober up, wise up, right? He sobers up and he wises up. After Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done in the decree he had made. Uh, in other words, he's having some serious remorse here. So his personal attendant suggested it in an effort to make him feel better. Let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. They're like, hey, listen, we know that you're bummed out about this, but again, you're the king. People do whatever the heck you tell them to do, so why don't we do this? We'll kind of like, make this beauty pageant of sorts. We'll go around, we'll get the most attractive versions in all of the land of, you know, throughout all of Persia, and then we'll bring them to you, and you can just pick who your next wife will be. And he's sitting there like, yeah, that might help. Okay, sure, let's do that. And so about right after this, we're introduced to Esther, whom this book of the Bible is named after, and her uncle Mordecai, the individual that she lived with. Now, Esther and Mordecai are among that small remnant of Jews that I alluded to earlier that decided to stay and live in this capital city of Susa. Now, Mordecai is looking at his niece going, you know what, she's really, really gorgeous. I mean, maybe she should throw her hat in the ring. And he kind of suggests that she should do this, but he's like, hey, but remember, do not tell them that you are a Jewish woman, because it's one thing. They had no problem with the Jewish people living among them, but they, there is no way that they would have allowed a Jewish woman, a foreigner from their perspective, become the queen of their land. So he's like, hey, if you decide to do this, make sure that you keep this a secret. And so she decides to throw her hat in the ring. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. I mean, immediately falls for her. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. And just like that, she is queen. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. 
we cannot totally appreciate how big of a deal this is. I mean, this is unbelievable that a Jewish woman has just become the, the, the queen of the most powerful kingdom on the planet and nobody knows. Only her and her uncle Mordecai. They're the only ones that know that, oh my goodness, okay, this is a Jewish woman and she is now the queen of this entire land. And again, some of you might be listening to this right now and as it goes on, you'll be like, is this even real? Is this a fairy tale? This is a real story. I mean, it's not just in the Bible this is documented. This is like other history books as well. This really, really happened. Now in the next chapter, again, she is now the queen of Persia. Let that sit in for a second. In the next chapter, we find out that Mordecai, his occupation, his job, what he did for a living was he would guard the palace gate. Uh, he worked for actually the king and he would guard the gate heading up there. And uh, one day he's sitting out there doing his job and he happens to overhear two men talking that are plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And he thinks, that's pretty interesting. And he goes and tells Esther. He says, Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She ten then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. She's sure to give him credit for it. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. Talk about swift justice, right? People would probably do a lot less dumb things if we just put them on in poles. But anyway, so now not only is Esther the queen, a Jewish woman, but her uncle Mordecai is also in the very good graces of the king as well because, again, he just saved the king's life from assassination. Now, in the next chapter, we're introduced to kind of the last character that we're going to talk about this morning, this guy by the name of Haman. Now, Haman was the number two in command uh, in the entire land of Persia. So you have Xerxes and then you have Haman. And Haman and Xerxes were really close. They were close friends. And what we find out about Haman is that he's about the most prideful person on the planet. In fact, he could kind of get the king to kind of do what he wanted because they were so close. He had the king sign an edict that said when ever Haman came around, so he walks into a room like this, or if he goes and he's starting to have dinner or something or whatever, wherever he goes, if you see Haman, you have to bow down to him as a sign of respect. Now, chances are there are probably not a lot of people that were thrilled about this, but everybody does it because they don't want to get in trouble, with the exception of one guy, Mordecai. He's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And Haman is furious about it, obviously very, very angry. It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality. So not only is he mad, right, because this guy's not following the law and he wants everybody to do this because he's so filled with pride, but on top of that, he's really, really mad. He's like, it's one thing for somebody to not bow down to me, but it's another thing for a foreigner, a guy that shouldn't even be here to not be doing this. He's really, really angry. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He's like, I don't want to just punish this guy. I, I want to do more. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Now he's close with the king, and so he goes to the king and he's like, starts to paint this picture that the Jews are a bunch of troublemakers. He's like, listen, if you don't do something about these Jewish people that are living among us, it's going to be a problem. In fact, they're multiplying at a rapid rate. They're very fertile. You got to do something about this, and if you don't watch out, you're going to get in trouble. They're going to rise up. They're going to take over your kingdom. You got to do something about this now. So he gets the king to sign an edict that says in about a year from that date, all of the Jews are going to be killed. Xerxes signs it, and little does he realize he just signed the death warrant for his very wife, whom he loves very much, Queen Esther, who he still has no idea that she is a Jew. Now, Mordecai is one of the very first people to see this thing, and he's distraught, obviously, right? He's probably starting to feel all the weight of the fact that he has essentially just killed all of his people, all because he wouldn't bow down to Haman. 
And so he's feeling terrible, and he reminds Esther that just in case she forgot, she is also a Jew, and she will not be safe if this thing goes through. And so she better try and intervene. She better try to do something about it. He says this to her. He kind of confronts her. He's a little confrontational. He says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. In other words, like, this is going to happen. Like, you're in trouble too. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. He's saying, listen, I'm confident that God's going to save us somehow, but I would like it to be you. But you and your relatives will die if you don't intervene. And then he says perhaps the most profound statement in this entire book. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. In other words, don't you think that God is in control? Don't you think that God has this entire thing orchestrated for his purpose? And so Esther gets to thinking, she's like, yeah, I should probably try to do something. So she comes up with this plan. She says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna invite Haman and the king to dinner, just the three of us. And at some point during this meal, I'm gonna kind of spring this on the king and we'll see how it goes, but I, I have to try and do something. So they have this first dinner and she invites the two of them and Haman's feeling pretty good about himself. I mean, he gets to have dinner with just the king and queen, but it never really comes up in that meal. There's not a really good opportunity for her to intervene and interject. And so Haman walks away and he's feeling real good about himself. He's like, dang. Not only does the king really like me, but the queen seems to like me as well because she threw this party for basically just me and the king. And so he's walking out of the palace feeling pretty good about himself. But on his way out, as he's feeling real good, he's probably had a couple cocktails. Who does he see? His buddy Mordecai. And Mordecai still will not bow down to him. In fact, it even says that he shows no fear of him whatsoever, despite the fact that this thing has just been signed that's going to kill him and all his relatives. And, and Haman is just furious. He's like, how does this guy still not seem to care? And so he goes from this incredible high because he just had dinner with the king and queen to this very low and he goes home and he's huffing and puffing about it. He's complaining it to his wife and his wife comes up with this brilliant idea. She's equally intelligent. She says this, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall because that's normal. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. I mean, yeah, in a year, you're going to get to kill all these people. But my goodness, Haman, why are you going to continue to allow this Mordecai, this one person to cause you so much stress and so much angst? Just kill him now. The king loves you. He's going to let you do it. This pleased Haman. And right away, he ordered the pole set up. Oh, <laughs> this is incredible. That night. Xerxes, the king, I mean, just set up this poll next morning, is excited to go and ask the king if he can, you know, kill Mordecai on it. That night, Xerxes, he can't sleep. He's tossing and turning, he can't sleep, much like me last night, tossing and turning, he's going back and forth. And because back then they didn't have an iPhone, they didn't have a TV, he's bored, he's sitting around, he can't like just start playing on a screen or something, he's like, I can't sleep, this ain't going away. He calls for one of his attendants. And one of these attendants enter the room and he's like, read to me the history of my reign, the history of me as king. And they would keep these very detailed documents, these very long books that would document everything that happened to these kings of Persia. And it just so happens that the part that is read to him by the attendant happens to be this story about this guy named Mordecai who overheard a plot to kill him. And he's sitting there and he's listening in and he asks the question, he goes, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? And the attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And so he's sitting there and he's thinking, he's like, well, 
we got to do something. I mean, this guy saved me from assassination. And wouldn't you know it, who comes walking in in that moment when he is trying to think of how to reward Mordecai? Our buddy Haman. Haman comes strolling right in, and he's like right about to ask, hey, I set up this big pole. I want to go impale Mordecai on it. We good? Like, can I do that real quick? But before he can even open his mouth, the king starts speaking. He says, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? I mean, what should I do? And Haman's sitting there thinking, and he's like, I wonder if he has somebody specific in mind. But he doesn't ask the question. He just goes on to tell this whole tale of, well, what you should do is you should put him in some really nice clothes, some of your clothes maybe, and and put him on your favorite horse, and then have somebody parade him around the city, and that person that's walking in front of them yells to everyone, this is what the king does for those who honor him. And the king's sitting there, and he goes, excellent, quick, Take the robes in my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. I mean, just imagine how devastated this guy is in that moment. I mean, he thinks he is moments away from finally killing this dude. And now he's trotting him around on a horse around the city. I mean, can you imagine how half-hearted that was? This is what the king does for those who honor him. Gosh. So he goes home that night again. He's all ticked off, obviously, completely humiliated. His wife's like, what happened? He's like, I don't want to talk about it, right? Like, he's all mad about it. But that night, Esther again says, hey, why don't you come over for dinner again? Because she still has not forgotten. I mean, this thing has still been signed that about a year from that time, they are all going to be killed. She's like, I got to intervene. I got to do something about this. And right in the middle of the meal, she happens to drop this little nugget on the king and Haman. She says, if I have found favor with the king, And if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. Now picture this moment for the king. His mind is racing. He's like, wait, wait, what? Wait, you're Jewish? Like, I mean, he's putting this together for the very first time. He says, for my people, she says this, for my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. Wait, my people, what do you mean? You're Jewish? Your uncle Mordecai, he's Jewish? Wait, wait. I signed what? Apparently this guy was signing so many of these things, he didn't even totally remember when he did it or why he did it. And so he asked the question that is begging to be asked. He says, who would do such a thing? What kind of an idiot would make me sign something like that? And just imagine the sweetness of this moment as Esther is sitting there going, funny you ask, and glances over at her adversary hey man, (laughs) she says, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And with that, Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. He knows that he is in trouble. And then out of nowhere, one of the servants, and I had to throw this in, this is hilarious. Some servant like pops his head around the corner. His name's Harbona. One of the king's eunuchs said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. Wouldn't you know it? He intended to use it to impale Mordecai. And he doesn't just say the name. He's not like, you know, just Mordecai. You know, just in case if you forgot, the man who saved the king from assassination. (laughs) And the king orders, then impale Haman on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Shortly after this, Another edict is passed that saves all the Jews from certain annihilation. Esther gets a book of the Bible named after her, and everyone lives happily ever after. Now, why did I just tell you that story? Why would we just spend 20 minutes going through pretty meticulously the book of Esther? Because 
it is yet another reminder that God is in control. Even in those times where everything feels out of control, God has our lives perfectly orchestrated for his purpose. There is no slowing him down. There is no getting in his way. He is absolutely in control. We are so quick to ask. We so often wonder, where are you? Why don't you reveal yourself to me, God? And he's going, what are you talking about? Open up your eyes. Look at the evidence that we see from thousands of years ago. Look at the lives of people like Esther and Mordecai. This book that that we are going to talk about every single week here at Grumla is filled with evidence that God is absolutely in control. Look at the New Testament. Look at the fact that God sent his one and his only son for us. He sent his son to die for us. He chose to get involved. We messed up that relationship. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me, but he did not stay dead. Three three days later, he conquered the grave. He conquered death. God did that for you. He did that for us. Look at the lives of the people in this room who have been completely transformed because of Jesus. Slow down and reflect on your own life and you will see countless times that God is trying to grab your attention. He is constantly pursuing us. When I read accounts like this in scripture, when I reflect on my own life, when I reflect on everything that God does for the local church, when I reflect on even everything that God has just done for Grumlaw, I am constantly reminded that God has this whole thing rigged. He doesn't need me. Grumlaw, this church, would be happening with or without me. I know that. I am 100% confident of that. God is bigger than me. God is bigger than anyone on our staff. He is bigger than our financial concerns. He is bigger than our sins. He is bigger than our mistakes. God has this whole thing rigged. God will not share his glory. He has a knack. He has a way of doing things in such a way where it is impossible for us to take credit. He has the whole thing rigged. These things that he does, they don't make any sense without him. There is no rationalizing it without God. He has had this thing in the works long before he ever put the idea of planting a church into my head. This isn't my church. It is so much better than that. And I cannot wait to reflect back in months, years down the road, and look at this church in the same way that I look at this book of Esther and just go, oh my gosh. Look at how God has had this fingerprints all over this. Look at how God has orchestrated every step along the way. The God that we talk about here is far bigger than us. It's far bigger than our plans. So that my hope is that you will go running to him. You will take a minute to reflect on your life and see his evidence all around and you will ask yourself the question, will I be a part of what God is doing. He constantly pursues us. He so desperately wants that relationship with you, not just because it sounds like the right thing to do, because he absolutely has your best interest in mind. And he knows how much better your life will be when you are living a life that is sold out for him.